Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, where we are going to be looking together at verses 29 through 39. That's Mark, chapter 1, 29 through 39, and you can find that passage on page 981 in your Pew Bibles. As I have said many times now in our look together at this particular book, Mark is on a mission. His desire is to tell us all about Jesus Christ and his gospel. And I think we can agree that he certainly succeeds in that. Though we would probably agree that both the Christ and the Christianity that is so often put forward today look very different from what Mark is and has been showing us. And we're going to talk of that some more in this text that is before us this morning in just a moment. Mark has been showing to us thus far in this book the absolute majesty and the magnificence of King Jesus. He has continually set before us in the first chapter of this book the supreme authority of Jesus Christ as Lord and as King. We know that He came and He stood in our place in baptism, indicating that it was He who would take upon Himself our sin, and He alone would stand in our place and receive upon Himself our punishment for our cleansing. The wrath of Almighty God would be poured out upon Him as He stood there in our place. We know that that was the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where Mark goes to begin to show us the biblical Jesus. And as he does so, the magnificence, of course, increases and grows. We are told that at his baptism by John the Baptist, that as he came up from the water, the heavens were opened and the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And the Father declared him to be his well-beloved Son in whom he was well-pleased. The time had come. The King had arrived. The long-awaited Messiah had come at last, and John was born, and he had lived for this very moment. His fame and his notoriety that were driving all of these people in droves out into the wilderness served this very purpose. John was born to be the herald of the king of all kings. It was he, John, that would now decrease. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ, his kingdom, his message, that would from that very moment forward increase. Mark then moves us at a fervent pace from the inauguration of Jesus Christ and his ministry in earnest to his being driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. And again, Mark made it very clear why he was driven there. I'm not going to rehash the wilderness motif that is so common in Mark here again this morning, except to remind you that Mark goes out of his way to show you why Jesus was there in the wilderness. Again, 
He stood in our place. Here was the second Adam coming to succeed where the first had failed. Jesus was in the wilderness in order to be tempted for us in our place. It was, if you will, a substitutionary temptation. And of course, he was triumphant in correcting Satan's crooked lie, his wicked twisting of the truth, and he did it with the static truth of the eternal Word of God. He clearly states what God had indeed said. He answers the lie with the truth. And he puts an end to any confusion that Satan has tried to cause. And his glory shines through it. Mark then moves quickly to the calling of his disciples. And you will remember that Mark does not simply want you to see these men who are called. Nearly as much as he wants to show you the king of all creation. Calling. And against all reason, against all logic, against all feelings and emotions that may get tied up in this, creation in an instant obeys His voice. Creation obeys the voice of the King. And He calls and they follow. The King speaks and His subjects get in line and they follow Him. Mark gives no personal narratives of these men. He spends no time showing to us their character or their value to be called to be his disciples. He simply calls and they follow. And again, we see his majestic authority on full display. Beloved, I want to tell you this morning, we need to see it. We need this Jesus. This is the Jesus who saves. This is the Jesus who came to undo the curse and to set the captives free for eternity. From the very beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ here in Mark, by the grace of Almighty God, we do see it. I'm asking you this morning if you see it. Do you see the majesty of this king? And it brings us to where we left off last week. Mark has taken us into the synagogue in Capernaum on the Sabbath day. And King Jesus rises and he begins to teach. And the people are astonished because he teaches not as the scribes teach, but with a clear authority that only belongs to him as the Word of God in flesh. And soon after he begins teaching those who are gathered there in the synagogue, we find out that there has been a demon in that congregation. That he has not been content, he has been content, this demon has been content to stay and to watch others look anywhere but to Jesus. And it's the demon who speaks up to find out What the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Messiah, would be doing in a place like this. And again, brothers and sisters in Christ, Mark wants us to see the full authority of Jesus Christ in that exchange. Jesus immediately issues a command and the demon is powerless to stop his voice 
from bringing about obedience to the king. Beloved, I hope you're beginning to see a pattern here in Mark. Mark is desperate to show to us the Lord Jesus Christ. He is bringing to you the full gloried gospel. This is the Christ who came to save. This is the king who came to conquer his foes and to lead the captives into glorious freedom. This is the time and the place and the message of the king of kings. We need to see it in our own day. This is not a Christ who sits back satisfied with the mere externals of blindly moralistic religion. You will never gain salvation. You will never gain a place in this kingdom by keeping a stiff upper lip and simply going through the motions of a dead faith. Mark doesn't make that available to you here. This Jesus did not come to be a mere example of how to live doing more good than bad. No. We need to understand what Mark is putting before you. This is the second Adam coming to restore things. This is the Son of God coming in order to redeem His people and reconcile them to the Father. And it would seem that everywhere we turn in this gospel account, we find a Christianity that just does not resemble so much of what we are willing to call Christianity today. In fact, at many points, I want to tell you, I think it stands in direct opposition to it. There is no blurring of the lines of the truth here. There is none of having the freedom of your own personal interpretation here. Jesus is not here represented as a sort of wishy-washy leader type who just wants to sacrifice everything so that we can all just get along. No, beloved, be clear. This is King Jesus. This Jesus invades your life. He commands And he moves forward with his mission. And as he does so, he inches ever closer to the cross to do exactly what he claimed, exactly what he came to do. And he proclaims the good news. And in the text that is before us this morning, Mark shows us something else about this long prophesied Christ and the Christianity that follows him that truly ought to encourage even the most discouraged among us this morning. So let us look together now to the Holy Word of God this morning. I'd like you to follow along as I read from the inerrant and infallible Word of God, Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. Hear now the Word of our Lord. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all those who were sick 
and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and he departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again this morning we are so grateful for your word and we're grateful for this time that we have to come together each and every Lord's Day and sit under the preaching of your word. We pray, Father, this morning that you would clear our hearts and our minds from all those things that distract us, that you would fill us with your spirit so that hearing the word of God, we may be transformed by it for your glory. Encourage your people this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that seems to be progressing here in Mark is the very clear picture that we get of just exactly what the mission of Jesus Christ truly was. We know what I mean by mission. We're answering that question. Why did Jesus come? Why was he willing to suffer and to die for people who seemed at times not only unaware or even extremely confused, but often altogether ungrateful for him? And so as Mark continues to unravel for us the gospel, he brings that mission into even tighter focus. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we we need to see it. But before Mark does that, he shows us something that I think we must see. And to do that, we move from that scene at the synagogue where Jesus has just removed a demon from the midst of the congregation into the humble house of a fisherman. It is apparently still the Sabbath day. Mark tells us that as soon as they left the synagogue... Jesus and his newly called disciples made their way to Peter's house. And Mark informs us that all is not well in the house of Peter. His mother-in-law has taken ill. Ill enough that the people there have very real concern over her well-being. And Mark tells us that she's actually filled with fever. To the point that she is unable to even rise and greet the guests that are entering their home. And so Jesus goes in to where she lay. And Mark tells us that he simply took her by the hand. He helped her up. And immediately the fever left her and she arose and began to serve the guests. There are a few things here I think we need to see and think about. 
First, and perhaps you've noticed it, but do you notice that this almost seems to be a departure for Mark here at first glance? Do you know why I would say that? Mark has been laser focused on his mission in writing this account. He's left out so many details to get us almost immediately into the very heart of Jesus Christ and his gospel. He's not gone back into the back stories. He spent no time on inner dialogues or really any dialogues for that matter. He's been sticking to the facts. And he's been moving at a fervent, almost desperate pace. And then suddenly, I would say even abruptly, he tells us about Peter's mother-in-law having a fever and Jesus healing her. And so we need to sort of pause here. We need to ask why. Have you ever wondered about it? Why is this healing important to the narrative as Mark lays out for us rather desperately the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? I mean, we can probably easily understand the narrative of the demon and is subsequently being cast from the Capernaum synagogue, right? It was public. It was a spectacle of sorts. It shows the power of the Lord Jesus Christ over the realm of Satan and his demons. It gives dimension to the extent of his authority and the power of his kingdom and his word. It rids the synagogue of an unwanted intruder. We get it, right? It's crucial to the story and the mission of Christ. However, there is even more to understand if we are ever to come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If we're not careful, we could look at the power that is on display in the miracles of Jesus and we could say, oh yes, that is what I need. I need that power, that kind of power, that kind of authority. That is what powerful biblical Christianity looks like. The sum of Jesus could simply be his power to work above nature in supernatural wonders. The pursuit of a Christianity that sees that becomes all about miracles and deals very little with guilt, grace, and gratitude. And beloved, I want to tell you, Mark knows it. He knows it and he will not have it. And so he gives to us this rather dramatic contrast here that we might see what Jesus is truly all about. Do you see the contrast? His work here, immediately following this public work with a demon in the realm of Satan with evil in public, here his work is private. We're even told that he alone is the one that goes in to see her. It's an intimate setting. He's going alone to another sickbed. It's even a bit real and raw as he does what no one living 
in that time is likely to do in reaching out and touching a person who is very apparently deathly ill with a fever. Beloved, there's something here that we must see. I want to tell you Mark does it because he wants you to know that Jesus is not unaffected by the brokenness of a world that has been completely marred by the fall, by sin. Do you see that here? Jesus loves and He has compassion upon His people, even in their temporary suffering. This would be such a small matter, especially to those of us living right now who until very recently probably did not give something like a fever all that much thought. But it's not a small matter. And again, Mark knows it. And I want you to see and to understand that this is not why Jesus came. He did not come to rid people of fevers. If you think that He came simply to give you your best, most comfortable life right now, then really, you have missed His mission altogether. No, He will get to His mission. We will get to His mission in a moment. But we know that that's not it. And yet we can see here in this example that He clearly is not indifferent to our suffering under the effects of the curse. He has compassion. He is sympathetic. He is moved by our predicament. We know absolutely nothing here about Peter's mother-in-law. At this point in the narrative, we really know precious little about Peter himself. Yet when informed as to what was going on, Jesus immediately goes into this woman and he heals her. Why? Because he loves us. Because he cares about the seemingly mundane, small issues in this life. Because in truth, our King loves us enough that there are no mundane, small issues in His eyes. Beloved, we have to see this. Jesus sees the brokenness of the fall. He sees the suffering of His people. And He's moved to ease our pain. Do you see that? This is not Jesus flexing His spiritual muscles in order to just show the world His power. This is Jesus, privately, without an audience, compassionately coming to a suffering child of God, one who in their guilt is suffering under the weight of the fall, and bringing her healing and relief in the face of real and present suffering. This is the King of Kings sympathizing with our weakness. This is Jesus meeting His people where they live and in sweet, loving compassion, offering aid to our weakness, offering rest from our struggles, offering comfort in the face of the results 
of our own sin. Do you see it? And the gospel is here, isn't it? Mark has not really departed from his theme at all. Here is this woman suffering under the weight of her sin and the sin all around her. She is not an innocent victim. She shares in the guilt of her father Adam as well as her own guilt and the effect of that guilt is clear in this picture. Death and decay. Sickness and weakness. Suffering and pain. All of those are part of the wages of sin. And Jesus, God in the flesh, the King of kings, reaches out His hand to her. And what happens when He touches her? Life. Life happens. Beloved, we have to see it. You see, her vitality is instantly restored. Listen, let me ask you. You've undoubtedly had a fever before, right? I can tell you that I suffered under a COVID-induced fever just last fall. And I want to tell you, I was weakened by it. So much so that after several days of it, once it had finally relented, it took me months to get my level of strength back to what it was before, the, before I fell ill. This woman's vitality is restored in an instant without so much as a word. To the point that we are told she arose with Jesus hand in hand and she immediately began to serve them. And I tell you, the gospel is here. It's all here, right? Guilt Grace and gratitude. All of it in the face of the mercy and compassion and life-giving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you that still, though we see it, though we ought to be moved by it, it was not His mission. Yet Jesus brings more grace. Beloved, I know that I do not need to ask you whether you have experienced the brokenness of the fall during this past week. We all have. To one degree or another, we have all suffered in the last seven days as a direct result of sin. I am certain that we've all felt the weight of it. But do you understand, do you see why this is such a tremendous encouragement to weary pilgrims making their way steadily towards their celestial home through this veil of tears that we call life? You are this woman. Jesus is not standing back weighing out your good choices against your poor ones. His grace is not extended to you on the basis of your meriting that grace. He does not come to you in your sin and say, Ah, aha! I've got you now. He comes to you in grace, He convicts you of sin, and He gives you the healing balm of the glorious good news of the Gospel. 
Beloved, is this where you come when life is pressing in on you? Do you know this Jesus? Or have you settled for something much, much less than this Jesus? Because this Jesus bids you to come and drink from the well that will quench your thirst for eternity. He bids you come. Will you come? Mark still moves towards the defining of his mission and he does not ignore the compassion of Jesus Christ to our earthly struggles. We should praise God for that. However, he must get to the mission of Jesus Christ and so he tells us that the crowds begin to now close in on this house. His fame had spread rapidly after that scene in the synagogue and so the people rushed to find him. And they too would like to have their demons removed. They too would like to have their temporary suffering alleviated. And keep in mind that this crowd is not apparently flocking to Jesus because they think that he is the one who has eternal life. They are not pushing in on Peter's house because they have a desire to be reconciled through him to the Father. To be redeemed by the Redeemer himself. They are looking for temporary, temporal healing. They are looking for worldly relief. Surely here is where Jesus is going to put this suffering mob into their place. Surely here is where he will declare to the listening world that he did not come in order to simply heal their earthly wounds. Mark said that they waited for the official end of the Sabbath and then the whole city came to Peter's house. And Jesus again was moved with compassion for those suffering under the weight of the curse. The curse that he came in order to undo and he heals them. Or at least he healed many of them. And that's all that Mark tells us. He doesn't go into their stories. He leaves out the worthiness that they might have to receive such a gift. He just tells us that Jesus continues in his compassion and his mercy to heal them. There is no evidence that any of them are even there for the right reasons. And Jesus healed many of them. And I want to be clear here. It is not wrong to bring your needs, even your desires, to Jesus Christ. It's certainly not wrong to cry out to Him in the face of your own trial. I'm not suggesting that. In fact, I would encourage you to do exactly that. The picture here is one of compassionate love. He bids us to come, and so we must. We must see our need for His healing. But beloved, what I'm saying and what we will see here in Mark in just a moment is that something is seriously wrong if that is all we want. You understand? Something is seriously wrong if all we want is temporary healing. If all we want is healing from the symptoms and not deliverance from the disease. Do you see that? 
There's something wrong with the Christianity that is comprised of a form of godliness with none of the power of the gospel. We should desire more from Jesus Christ than just temporary relief. We should be joyfully running towards Him for more than temporary comfort. There is a suffering that is greater than physical and mental pain, and Jesus came for that. He came to heal the disease, not merely the individual symptoms of a much greater problem. But in His humble love, in His compassion, His sympathy, He's moved to bring us both eternal and temporary healing. He came for a much greater victory though. He came for our sin itself. He came to give life to those who are dead, not just occasionally sick. He's much more than just a sort of cosmic genie waiting to fulfill your wildest wishes. He's here to restore He's here to seek and save the lost. He's here as the second Adam, as the one who will fulfill all righteousness for us and give to us eternal life in Him. And we can never lose sight of that. His healing here is pointing to a much greater healing that must take place. And Jesus will move His people to see it. This is not the end but merely one of the means to the end. Jesus heals. He silences the mouths of demons and He casts them away. And then, what does He do? He disappears. Mark tells us that in the morning, having having risen a long while before daylight, He went out and He departed to a solitary place And there he prayed. Beloved, we need to see it. He did what he must do as our Savior. He found a place away from the crowd, away from the confusion, and he prayed. Prayed about what exactly? Mark doesn't tell us. Because it's not the important piece of what's going on here. Jesus must commune with the Father. He must pray for those whom He came to save. He must prepare for His mission. And so He prays. There are so many things that we could see here in that fact alone. For now I will tell you that Mark is giving you a fully orbed vision of His work. He heals, He restores, He saves, He acts as our advocate. We see all of those here. You think through our own confession with the Apostles' Creed each and every Lord's Day, and we see that confession here being lived out for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But Mark is not done. We need to see what we must see. And so we find Peter and the disciples who are with him at this point intruding on this moment, this precious moment of his communion, the communion between the Father and the Son. And they do it, they intrude upon this moment in order to rebuke Jesus in their sin-stained good intentions. 
They look for him until they find him. And when they do, having seen what they've seen, having known what they've known, they do not fall to their knees before him. They do not seek the fullness of redemption in him that these healings but serve to point them towards. What do they do? They rebuke him. They seek to correct him. They say in effect, hey man, what are you doing? We've had to look everywhere for you. Why are you out here of all places alone when the crowd is clearly over there? And the people are dying for more. The crowds have increased. They're eager for more. You have started a great thing here, Jesus. Come back with us now before it's too late. And they begin to leave. Let's go. Hurry, there's no time to lose if we want to get a maximum return on all of your work. Beloved, this is where what's popular today and the Christianity given in Mark begin to go in different directions. Look at what Mark does. According to Mark, what is Jesus' reply? To this accusation, this knowledge that he was blowing it. Well, he doesn't even acknowledge it. He didn't come for that. He didn't come to mystify people and to gather a crowd. He didn't come to increase his numbers. He didn't come to get maximum return for his work. He will not allow for the gospel message of salvation to become eclipsed by something that is much less than what he actually came for. And so he simply says, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. Because for this purpose I came forth. The purpose of his coming The purpose of his mission is clear. He came to accomplish what needed to be accomplished and to preach the good news to the captives. Along the way, he has compassion on the struggling, the outcast, the broken, those who come to him for help. He doesn't turn away. Mark tells us he continued to heal the broken. He continued to cast out the demons, but he never for a moment loses sight over what his purpose in coming really was. It wasn't reputation. It wasn't even a following. He never stops proclaiming the gospel and making his way steadfastly towards the cross. That's why he came. Beloved, I fear that too much of what calls itself the church today misses this great purpose in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I want to be clear. Jesus did not come to set up a surface level external religion that simply cannot stop patting itself on the back because of its so-called good intentions. If he had, his response to these disciples would have been very different. 
He did not come to set up just another caste system where the members are measured by their personal discipline regiments and how well they stack up when weighed against everyone else. He did not come so that we could cling to our tradition as if it were a long record of years that saved us. He did not come to save a people who were content with occasional little outbursts of power and then gladly just going through the motions. Mark wants you to see it. This is the Son of God. This is the King of Kings. And He invades our lives so that rescue can even be a possibility. Do you understand? Jesus never calls you to come and to barter for your comfort. But we do that, don't we? Oh Lord, if you'll just take this away, I'll do this. He doesn't call you to come and barter. He does not come to say, look, here's some grace. Now you better work harder. You better do better next time. He does not even come and say you had better not do that again. He came and He accomplished what He knew you are incapable of ever accomplishing. Only He was found perfectly righteous according to the law. And He came to suffer and die in your place that you might have life in Him and live. He came to proclaim sweet freedom to those who have only lived in bondage. And beloved, He does not seek your sacrifice in return. He does not seek your perfect obedience. He tells you to be grateful. And so I ask you this morning in closing, beloved, are you grateful this morning for this Jesus? If you are, let His praises ring in your worship this morning. Indeed, let them ring in every single day of your life. This Jesus says, come. Bring your worries, bring your fears, bring your complicated, trouble-ridden lives and lay them at the foot of this humble, loving, gracious, all-powerful, all-sovereign King of Kings. And be content to live in Him until that day that He calls us in His mercy home to glory where we get to be with Him as He is. Amen? Let's pray.